When I was young, first learning the stories of the Bible, it seemed like a very clear world of right and wrong, that there are good guys and bad guys. You've got heroes in the Bible and villains. Noah was righteous. The other people in his day were wicked. Those people in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were terrible, but, but Abraham was a righteous man who interceded for them. David was a man after God's own heart, and Saul was a paranoid, homicidal maniac who wanted to kill him. The Midianites and the Philistines were wicked, and then you've got men like Gideon and Samson. They were faithful and heroic. I knew that the heroes of the Bible, that they weren't perfect. I knew David sinned with Bathsheba, and Samson sometimes is kind of arrogant and foolish. But when it came to right and wrong, I assumed the Bible left no doubt. But the truth is, the Bible is much more complicated than that. It's not always just heroes and villains. It's not really black and white. Sometimes you read a story in the Bible and you're not even sure who's right and who's wrong, who, who you should be cheering for and who you should condemn. And one of the best examples of this, this moral ambiguity is found in Genesis chapter 34 in the heartbreaking story of the rape of Dinah and the vengeance of her brothers. It's not just disturbing, it's, it's also kind of confusing. God never makes an appearance in this chapter. He makes no comment on what takes place. And the narrator doesn't give us a hard and fast, clear black and white judgment. It's not entirely clear what we're supposed to make of what happens in this chapter. And it's a story that's bothered and and puzzled readers for centuries. Early Jewish readers divided on how they interpreted it. The Book of Jubilees, for instance, uh, it's a Jewish writing from the second century BC. Jubilees makes it abundantly clear who it thinks is the villain and who are the heroes of the story. In describing Shechem's violation of Dinah, it says, that he lay with her and defiled her, and she was a little girl, a child of 12 years. I don't know where Jubilees gets this detail, but it makes Shechem to be not only a rapist, but a child predator. And then it goes on to describe Simeon and Levi's actions as righteous and praiseworthy, and as the judgment of God on the Hivites. And it says that Levi is later rewarded for his righteous zeal by being given the honor of having his descendants become the priests of Israel. But other ancient Jews, however, saw it differently than Jubilees. The first century historian Josephus, he describes Simeon and Levi's actions in a much less praiseworthy manner. He, he talks about them as, as a kind of reprehensibly violent Thing and is going against the direct will of their father. And later writers, such as the Protestant reformer John Calvin, agreed with Josephus. Yes, Calvin says, Shechem's rape of Dinah was reprehensible, but Simeon and Levi's decision to deceive and then massacre an entire city of males, that's, that's much worse. Shechem, Calvin says, acted wickedly and impiously, but it was far more atrocious that the sons of Jacob 
should murder a whole people to avenge themselves of the private fault of one man. And the blame doesn't end there. Some ancient Jewish commentaries, some Midrashic commentaries, lay the blame not only on Shechem and Simeon and Levi, but, but Dinah as well. All this happened because Dinah, as we're told in verse 1, went out from her father's house, where, these commentaries say, she should have remained. And that's why all this came about. Cyril of Alexandria, who's one of the few church fathers to comment on this passage, he says something similar. He, he criticizes Simeon and Levi, but he also says that Dinah would not have been violated if she had stayed in her father's house. And then from that observation, he draws a lesson for us. Those who want to avoid destruction must be careful not to leave the tabernacle of the Father, that is, the house of God, in order not to be received into the herds of the heretics and other strangers. Now, most modern readers of this story would be rather appalled at the idea that Dinah shares any blame in her rape. And I don't mention Cyril's comments because I agree with them. My only point is to illustrate the fact that this story is a very morally complicated story. And it's very difficult, not just for us today, but, but for Jewish and Christian readers in the past. It's difficult to read this and try to draw some kind of clear moral lesson from it. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't try. After all, for as, for as terrible and uncomfortable as this story is, it is still the word of God for the people of God. There is a reason that the Holy Spirit inspired the author of Genesis to include it. Like all of the rest of Scripture, this story has been given to us for our good and our salvation. Our task is to simply read it carefully and answer the question, how does this, how does this strange and tragic story help us to love God and love our neighbor? But first, how do we read this story well? How can we read it carefully? I think that one of the most careful and close readers of this story in modern times is an Israeli Jewish scholar by the name of Meir Sternberg. And his interpretation of it, he points out that the author of Genesis is very intentionally nuanced. And rather than just identifying one or two bad guys, that the narrator has a way of calling into question the actions of many different people in this chapter. Take Shechem, for instance. Uh, Shechem, the way that his action in verse 2 is described, leaves no doubt about the wrongness of what he's doing. And Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite prince of the land, saw Dinah and took her and lay with her and abused her. There's no ambiguity there. There's no hint of romance, no suggestion that this was consensual or welcomed. Shechem, we're told, sees Dinah, he takes her, he lays her, and he abuses her or humiliates her, as the ESV translates it. The narrator's description of it is clear enough. There's no real need to tell us whether this is right or wrong. But just in case it isn't clear, he does, he does give us his own commentary several verses later. In verse 7, when he says, the sons of Jacob were indignant and very angry because Shechem 
had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. And still later in the chapter, it gets worse when we realize that not only has Shechem violated Dinah, he's also kidnapped her and he seems to be holding her hostage. It's a detail we don't find out until verse 26, when we're told that Simeon and Levi, after attacking and slaughtering the men of the city, that they retrieved Dinah from his house. But when you read that verse, it's just one more reason to despise what Shechem has done. And yet, despite all that, Genesis doesn't reduce Shechem to just a one-dimensional villain. In verse 3, right after, right after he attacks and rapes Dinah, the narrator kind of qualifies what Shechem's actions by saying that his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Of course, that doesn't excuse what he's done, but it does give us a clue that maybe this story is a little more complicated than we thought. Also, for as much as the narrator clearly wants us to condemn Shechem, he doesn't portray Simeon and Levi as blameless brothers just sticking up for their sister. Verse 13 says that when they respond to Hamor's offer of a bribe price for Dinah, it says that they're being intentionally deceitful, that then they not only slaughter all the males of the city, but they do it by tricking the men into circumcision, thus perverting the covenant sign that God gave to Abraham as a tool for violence. And after they have wreaked their vengeance, Jacob condemns them, not, not just once, but twice. He does it first at the very end of the chapter in verse 30, in which, to which they defend themselves and, and they seem to get the last word. But then, much later in Genesis chapter 49, verses 5 through 7, Jacob, he brings this back up when he is giving a blessing to his sons. And instead of blessing Simeon and Levi, he curses them for their violence. But if you read this story carefully, you'll notice it's not just Shechem and Simeon and Levi who bear the blame. The fathers are also at fault. Hamor, Shechem's father, could have condemned or rebuked or disciplined his son, but he doesn't. Instead, after Shechem violates Dinah and he then tells his dad, get me this girl for my wife. And then his dad just goes along with it and does exactly what he wants. And what about Jacob? Genesis gives us several clues that suggest that Jacob is also not exactly blameless here. First, it's Jacob who decides to settle in the city of Shechem in the first place. He doesn't return to Bethel as he promised God in chapter 28. He doesn't remain separate from the people of Canaan. No, at the end of chapter 33, after he's reconciled with Esau, we're told that he settles his family down in this Canaanite city. And then after his daughter is raped, how does Jacob respond? Is he, is he furious that someone has violated his daughter? Like King David is when his own daughter Tamar is raped? Is he... Is Jacob inconsolably grieved for her 
as he himself is later when he's told that his son Joseph has been killed? Does he respond like that? No. He shows, it seems, almost no real emotion. He says nothing at first. And, and then in response to Hamor, he, he says almost nothing. And then later when he condemns Simeon and Levi, Jacob almost seems more concerned about self-preservation than his daughter's stolen honor, which he never mentions. Jacob doesn't come across in this chapter as a loving or protecting father. And Sternberg, the scholar, suggests that maybe the reason for that is, as we find out in the very first verse of the chapter, that Dinah is the daughter of Leah. The Leah, the wife whom Jacob never really loved, and whose children he almost always seems to treat as second class. And like I said, there's a lot going on in this story. It's not, it's not an easy black and white account of who's to blame. Genesis shows some sympathy for the anger of Simeon and Levi, for Hamor's attempt at conciliation, for Jacob's concerns about political relations, and even for Shechem's desire for Dinah. The rape itself was inexcusable, but Shechem does at least seem to, seem to have some kind of love for her afterwards. At the end of the day, though, no one in this story really comes across as admirable. The whole thing just seems to be one tragic failure after another. So what are we supposed to do with it? Why should we read this story at all? What kind of benefit are we supposed to get from this? I think there are a lot of depths to this story that we could explore to try to answer that, but I'd like to briefly suggest two lessons that we can take away, two ways that this story should shape us. And the first of these two is a moral lesson, and it revolves around our need for lament. One of the purposes of the Bible is to shape us as moral beings, as as human beings who are called to live lives of holy obedience, to teach us what is right and wrong, to help train us what we should love and what we should avoid. And one of the ways that the Bible does that is through lament. The Bible forms us, not just by teaching us what to love, but by teaching us to grieve, to grieve at how sin corrupts and destroys human life. It does it by describing the entrance of sin into the world, by talking constantly about how sin haunts and cripples God's people throughout their history, about God's response to sin, how it causes him to grieve and to bring judgment upon those he loves. But the Bible doesn't just teach us to lament sin in a kind of generic way. It also teaches us in very particular ways what we should lament and why. And that's important because, as one theologian recently put it, Christians need to learn what ought to be lamented and what ought not. That capacity isn't available to us without catechesis. We have to be shown it and we have to learn it. I think that's one of the moral benefits that we get from this story. It teaches us what to lament and why. It helps us understand, understand why men were made to use their strength to protect and defend women. 
and how terrible it is when they use it to abuse them instead. It reminds us that that men and women were meant to enjoy sexual intimacy in the comfort and the safety and the love of marriage. And it teaches us that by showing us what can happen when sex is used for loveless, self-centered pleasure. When we read this story, we we grieve the, the failures of fathers who failed to love and protect and discipline their children. We grieve it because we see an example of one father who indulges an abusive son and another who neglects to love and defend an abused daughter. And through this story, we also learn to lament how much self-righteous anger can corrupt the good, righteous desire to see justice done. Two brothers are rightly angered and they want to see justice done for their sister. But in their indignation and outrage, they instead become mass murderers. And this isn't just some old story. This is, this is something that is true of human life. And we do well to lament and to grieve. But that's not the only lesson of this story. There's also another theological lesson we can learn from it. And that involves our need for atonement. As I said earlier, one of the difficulties of Genesis 34 is that God makes no appearance in it. He doesn't rebuke or applaud. He doesn't condemn or approve what anyone does. But in the opening verse of the very next chapter, we do hear from him. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Why does God tell Jacob to do this, to to go to Bethel and build an altar? Why now? We might read it as a kind of subtle critique of Jacob, who should have gone to Bethel already and had instead decided to settle in this Canaanite city. Maybe this is God's way of saying, see what you get. Now, Now go where you were supposed to go. That might be part of it, but I don't think that's the only reason that God speaks up now and tells Jacob to go. Because notice that he doesn't just say to go to Bethel. He also says to build an altar and make sacrifice. And if you continue reading, you'll see that he tells Jacob for him and his family to get rid of the foreign gods they're keeping and to purify themselves. Why does this matter? Well, in chapter 34, we're told that Simeon and Levi are angry because their sister Dinah has been defiled. And the vengeance that they wreak among the Hivites is a way to deal with this defilement. But we know that the defilement goes deeper than that. They too are defiled by their own actions. They have blood on their hands. And evidently, Jacob's family continues to keep and harbor these foreign gods, and they're being defiled by them as well. The real problem, you see, the real problem isn't just the defilement of Dinah. The real and greater problem is the defilement of Israel itself. And the solution to defilement cannot come come through politics or through the violence of Simeon and Levi. As the Catholic theologian R.R. Reno says, humans cannot use moral and political agency to overcome the infection of sin. We can use the power of the sword to restrain sin, But the solution to its defiling, infecting power is to be found in ritual rather than political action. Defilement must be brought before God for atonement. 
for only God's sanctity is powerful enough to cleanse without destroying. Now, something that we seem to forget again and again, how often do we resort to things like politics to overcome the infection of sin? But the lesson of the Bible in general, and the lesson of this story in particular, is that the infection of sin has spread deeper and further than we think. And because of that, what we finally need isn't just a sword that will bring justice to bear, but a sacrifice that can cleanse and purify our stained and defiled hearts. Thank you.